Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome. My guest today is Arnold Kling, independent scholar and author of a wonderful book called The Three Languages of Politics, which we're going to be talking about uh, today. Uh, Arnold's an independent scholar, PhD in economics from MIT. Uh, he's a founder of a very successful internet startup, uh, homefairs.com, which he had the good sense to sell in 1999 um, and has been an independent scholar ever since. So we'll, we'll talk about Arnold with that, I, I hope, a bit. Uh, he's also written a terrific book that we hope to get up to in an uptime, upcoming episode, Specialization in Trade, which is a very interesting take on macroeconomics and what it is and what it isn't and, and what economics should be. Arnold, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, so three languages of politics, interesting topic. What, what drove you to, uh, to write this and what, what's the source? Well, I noticed several years ago that when I was reading political commentary, it was not designed to open the minds of people on the side of the commentary, commentator, and it was not really designed to open the minds of people on the other side. If I looked at it really carefully, what it was trying to do was close the minds of the people on your own side. And that seems pretty dysfunctional. And so I just started to delve into that. And the three languages is sort of a model of how people do that, of how they go about closing the minds of the people on their own side. So one alternative for the pundit would be to open the minds of people on their side that would be a really brave thing to do, yeah. <laughs> or open the minds of people on the other side, yeah. but instead they close the minds of people on their side. Yeah. What's their motivation? Well, I think that ultimately it's, it's what gets them attention and support and status within their, uh, within their tribe. Yeah. And so the competition leads them to do that. Um, it's just... If it, to the extent that they try to open their minds of the people on the own, their own side, they get hammered by people on their own side. And to the extent that they're trying to engage seriously with people on the other side, they just don't get any attention at all because people are just very confused. They're so used to the tribal war whoops that they're, uh, and, the, and they're used to hearing these three languages used, especially well, I, to denounce the other side. I've, I've uh, I guess I've written and spoken about uh, the fact that I think politics is almost irretrievably broken. And one of the things I wanted to get in today, and the thing I'm really interested in, is you've got a way, a paradigm really, of uh, a better way for people to engage politically. And you mentioned three tribes. What are those three tribes? Okay, so you have what I call the progressive tribe, what people call liberals nowadays. Um, and then you have a conservative tribe, and a, a very small tribe, but I, I've uh, feel closer to that tribe than the others, and that's the libertarian tribe. Yeah, I think I'm in that tribe too. There are about twelve of us, aren't yeah. there? Maybe. More. And, and we yeah. all and, and there and we all uh, expel each other from. We say that you know, we excommunicate one another quite regularly. So there may be even fewer than twelve. So what are the progressives? Uh, you talk in the book about progressive heroes and heroes of each tribe. Who are the who are the heroes to progressives? Uh, okay, so for the progressive. The what I, I so each tribe I think of as having a 
particular axis of sort of moral certainty. Uh, when they can frame something along these along this particular each axis, they they're sort of morally certain about it. And so for progressives, the axis of moral certainty is oppressor oppressed. So their villains are people who they think are oppressors, and their heroes are people who they think of as standing up for the oppressed. And conservatives, heroes. So conservatives, the uh, axis of moral certainty is civilization versus barbarism. So conservatives see civilization as fragile. That's what they want to conserve. They always think that there's some threat from some uh, barbarian outlook. And so they're, the villains for them are the people who, are, who they see as out to destroy this fragile civilization. And the heroes are the people who stand up for... So some, Edmund Burke some, would be a hero to conservatives. Um, or maybe someone like Winston Churchill would be the okay. ultimate hero yeah, yeah. standing up to the barbarism of the Nazis. And libertarians. So for libertarians, the axis of certainty is liberty versus coercion. Uh, they view people who uh, want to impose their values on other people coercively as the villains, and the heroes are people who stand up for liberty. And they define government as a coercive... Uh, as, as the ultimate coercive tool. Yeah, other than other than criminal gangs, government <laughs> is is the only main coercive uh, coercive tool. Yes. Now you you in the book you talk you give some examples of, of of different kinds of issues that could be explained in three ways uh, by the different tribes. Uh, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. The. Um, so let, let, let's do something even more recent, sort of something like the NFL players taking a knee. Great, great. Let's do um, take a knee. And <clears throat> so Progressive looks at that and says, um, okay, so black people are oppressed as, as a group, and so if you're against the players kneeling, then you're on the side of the oppressors and you're a villain. Uh, that's sort of that, that would be that your natural instinct. Mm -hmm. For conservatives, the things like the national anthem is part of civilization, uh, the, the, the flag, all these, these symbols are very important. And so if you're, uh, if you're for the players, then you're against uh, civilization, you're on the side of barbarians, and, and you're wrong. Uh, libertarians would probably not take as much of an emotional issue on, on this, but they would, they would say, that both that the players have freedom should have freedom of speech, but also that the owners have a freedom to fire players. So that that there's no, you know, that that would be the side of liberty in that one. And uh, uh, tax reform. Uh, tax reform. I don't. I'm not going <clears> to. <throat> well, as I've seen it in the press, and you, I've got to tell you honestly, uh, I've kept my eyes closed during this whole tax reform debate. <laughs> That's probably very wise. But um, the progressives, eyes and ears. the progressives are, I think, are, are beating the oppressor, oppressor. Sorry, the progressives are beating the oppressor oppressed axis, as far as I can tell, saying that this is, you know, this is just going to put money in the hands of the rich people and so on. Um, the conservative take was, you know, we're, we're now going to reward effort and risk-taking more than we did, and so that's good for civilization. Well, and they've got the family credit. I mean, the conservatives yeah. want to promote family and, 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 and traditional values, and the right. tax code is one of the tools for them to do that. Right, exactly. And a libertarian would just probably say less taxes. That's all we care about. Yeah, yeah or, or both. 
this one would start with no corporate tax at all yeah. and then uh, and go from there. Different conversation for a different day. But the thing that's animating me, to, and I want to understand more about this, people have taken moral positions. Progressives believe they occupy the moral high ground, so do conservatives, so do uh, libertarians. And when you, uh, you, know, you open the book with, uh, with a quote by my friend John Maldlin, it says, when you can classify a significant movement as unworthy of your consideration due to your intellectual or political station, it is hard then to sit down and work out solutions to share problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a saying that, you know, never try to win an argument with your spouse. And that yeah, it sounds like, like it's, it's the start of a stand-up comedy thing. Somebody's going to tell you about some time he tried to win an argument and lost with his spouse or something. Yeah. But it's actually a very profound statement. It says that a disagreement with your spouse is not something you should think of as a zero-sum, win-or-lose situation. You can think of it as an opportunity to gain understanding and come to terms with somebody. Mm -hmm. And politics really ought to be that way. I mean, this mm -hmm. may be very idealistic, but that people should be trying to understand the assumptions that other people have the background that they have, the perspective that they have, and try to come to terms with, with somebody. That doesn't mean, you know, giving up and saying, you know, not trying to argue your point, but, but try to uh, un maybe try to both sides learn from, from each other rather than trying to beat each other down. So that's, again, it, it sounds idealistic, but I, I think, you know, 50, 60 years ago, we might have had things like that. There were, there were bipartisan bills. Uh, important legislation was bipartisan. The, uh, I want to go a couple of different directions with this. Uh, one of them I want to talk about is the social dimension of politics and about how we are slow to come. Because we're part of one of these tribes, it's difficult for us to break free of the tribe because of the, the punishments that occur when you step outside your, your, um, your, your social circle. Yeah. Um, there was a, an article, I think it was in New York Magazine, I forget, but it was by Andrew Sullivan, and I was really jealous that he picked up on a lot of the themes that I picked up on, but I was even more jealous of the illustration that they put on the article. They, they put three pens of sheep of different colors, and it seemed like each the goal of each sheep was to try to get in the middle of its own set of sheep. Hmm. And so as you do Great that, they, they crowd together and they separate from the other, other pens. And that, uh, that gets to what you're talking about, the sort of the, the social nature of things. People are trying so hard to raise their status within their tribe and to maintain their status within their tribe that the consequence of that is they, do, they lose the ability to communicate outside their tribe. So what would be the language of progressive versus the language of uh, conservative versus the, are there are there certain words that that are that are virtue signaling words for each 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 tribe um well again anything for a progressive anything to do with uh you know oppressor versus oppressed fairness equality and, yeah and those? just um and somehow in, intrinsically oppressed classes so, you know, you're not, you're not looking at somebody and saying, 
this is an individual and they've got you know their own uh, inherited characteristics and their own temperament and their own uh, abilities and skills you just say this is this person is you know is white male straight therefore they're in the member of an oppressed class or this person is you know black female they're they're Sorry, the uh, the white, white male, male straight, straight is member of the class. oppressor. I, I, I like sorry, that. oppressor class. <laughs> uh, the member of the it's oppressor. The first time I. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, well. And I'm I'm an ex CEO. Yeah, that's yeah. also part of the. Yeah. That's yeah. also part of the oppressed class. Yeah, the oppressor classes, <laughs> and uh, and then the oppressed class, you know, so someone you know like a black female or or a, a gay male or something, and. But, uh, but once you adopt that position, and I don't want to get off into yeah. making arguments because we're trying to find uh, a common ground, better ways to engage, but once you adopt the position that you're a victim, it seems to me there's no way you can undo that. I mean, I don't know, how far do you take something where you're no longer a victim? I, I, I think it, the, it it's an odd thing that, that victimhood becomes a privilege. It becomes, you know... You, Somebody will stand up in a public situation and say, as a black woman, and you're supposed to say, well, I'm a white male and I can't argue with that. Just, I don't care what she says. She could say, you right. know, the moon is made of green cheese and I can't argue with that because she is saying, you know, standing up in that position. So, um, and I, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conundrum. Yeah. And it's, it's part of the issue we're trying to face and how to get people to, to, to talk with each other. One of the, and I want to, I want to jump to something else. But let me stick with the the virtue signaling that conservatives have and libertarians have. A couple just to help make it more vivid. The uh, so the conservative, it's just you know we're on the side of civilization. We're fighting barbarism. So the um, um, when Donald Trump gave a speech, I think it was about last August. It was like his one of his first foreign policy speeches. He talked about you know Western values are under attack. And we've got to defend them. And you know, conservatives heard that as a dog whistle. Oh yeah, this is <laughs> this is you know, this guy gets it. I mean, yeah. that was actually the first time for a lot of you know traditional conservatives to say this is you know Trump's sounding like 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 a conservative. And progressives, meanwhile, took it as a dog whistle that he was racist, that he was just you know that Western values was a code word for racism. So. Um, you know, that's that's an example of people taking these signals out of and a, a libertarian code word signal. The, the libertarians would be, uh, you know, they're the most um, sort of open borders oriented, yeah. and uh, so they they would take. They're, they're a, not they're not building a wall. They're not building a wall, and they're not, um, and they're not, uh, they're not. They don't want to gear up for a fight for Western values. You know, they're very pacifist. They just they think that, you know, government trying to impose our <laughs> values abroad is as is, is, is dysfunctional as government trying to uh, impose things domestically. So they think bringing democracy to Iraq was maybe a bad idea. They would have never gone for that. <laughs> ne never have gone for I that. I supported the war, but in hindsight, boy. Yeah. Our, our ambitions way ac exceeded our ability to d deliver. Uh, you you mentioned something. We, you talked. You brought up Trump. Where does he fit into this uh, scheme of three tribes? I, I think he mixed things up a bit, um, maybe a lot. Uh, I think of him as 
is promoting a divide of, that I call the Bobo versus anti-Bobo, and that's from uh, something that David Brooks David wrote Brooks, yeah. 20 years ago, uh, Bobo's in Paradise. Bobo is short for bourgeois bohemian, and he was describing... Uh, bourgeois so, bohemian. Yeah, okay. so the, yeah, and it, it, he's fascinated with the conflict or the contradiction between uh, sort of the people who came out of the 60s and 70s still having kind of the uh, hippie ethos, but then making a lot of money uh, in the uh, because of because they were highly educated and highly skilled. Um, and so they be, they became a, a sort of an elite and uh, a privileged group, or maybe not privileged, but certainly successful. And then you, at the same time, you have you know people in flyover country, um, clearly resenting this. And this is this has really been true for a couple hundred years. I've just been just been rereading a book called Albion's Seed, hmm. which is a book about the the very origins of, uh, of, uh, of American culture when, when the British came. And, and one group of the, that came over was the Scots-Irish uh, borderers who came in, and started in Appalachia. And they've always hated anyone who thought that they were superior to them, whether they were, thought they were superior to them culturally, economically, politically. And... Trump picked up on that, and and, and you know that's they they have a lot of descendants uh, culturally and in terms of population, and so Trump rallied the what uh, what some people call Greater Appalachia, and uh, they they're, they're sort of naturally uh, enemies of the bourgeois bohemians. Well, there, so. there there are two books, uh, other books on that uh, country class versus the ruling class, which uh, Anglo and I'll butcher his last name, Cordovia, yeah. wrote about four or five years ago, which right. predicted this and basically lumped both the Republicans and the Democrats together in, in Congress or in, in, yeah. in power as part of the ruling elite. Yeah. And then the other one was uh, Born Fighting uh, from our Senator James Webb. Yeah. Jim Webb. Yeah. Uh, which talked about the Scots Irish and yeah. um, you know, a lot of my family is Scots Irish and you know I, I, this this idea of being against the revenuers is very yeah. appealing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh... <clears throat> so Trump captured that. Yeah, and uh, but so that explains and it, and, and that <clears throat> and that and that elite has always hated Trump. In fact, if you go back to Brooks's book, there's actually a paragraph in there where he lists a bunch of cultural symbols that the bourgeois bohemians hate. And even back then, Donald Trump is in that list. Trump Tower was number one on the <laughs> list. <laughs> How could they tear down that beautiful yeah. brownstone? Or yeah. what, what, I can't remember uh, what department story tore down to put yeah. it up. Uh, so the uh, one of the tools you talk about to get at better ways to engage is something called slow thinking as opposed to fast thinking. And fast thinking is where we just immediately say, this is right, this yeah. is wrong, without, coming yeah. from our own paradigm. Yes, and um, one of the things that I've been focusing on since writing the book is the sort of the role that social media plays in that it, I think it increases polarization because you see something on social media and you know things move quickly and you just want to, you, you just feel like you have to react right away. And the faster you react, the more emotionally you react, the more you react in terms of, seeing threats and see, be, feeling outrage. 
And so social media, I think, has really accelerated the, the polarization because you just you, you don't take the time to think and re, you just immediately try to react. I have a, a blog and I make it a rule to schedule my posts. How do we to, how do we find your blog? Uh, just look for Arnold Kling blog. Okay. K L I N G. You'll you'll get there one of these days. And the um, I make the point of scheduling posts two or three days in advance, and that's to force me to not react with outrage. Uh, to things I see, and also to anticipate something that's e at least going to last past a two or three day news cycle. Um, the news cycle is ridiculously fast now. So mm. that if you you know if you see a big story now, the one thing you can count on is that within a week it'll have disappeared. Um, and that's a uh, you know that th that's a, a big problem. It, it 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 again inhibits kind of slow thinking and. and uh, and slower thinking. I'm, I'm borrowing that from Daniel Kahneman's term. That you know, when, when Daniel Kahneman th wrote a book on uh, thinking fast and thinking slow. Yeah, and yeah. the uh, the point is, fast thinking is often you know error prone and emotional, and slower thinking is more careful and thoughtful. Well, it seems to me like we you know they're, they're the I think it's the gun laws where you're supposed to wait two days before you can get your gun. Yeah. Maybe we need to do something libertarians wouldn't like, but enact a rule on the internet <laughs> that you get two day yeah. you get a two day rule where you you can't you can't post until yeah. you, until you waited two days. Well, I I, I mean and, yeah, as a libertarian, I don't want to impose rules, yeah, but I yeah. do think that uh, sort of hygiene on sort of hygiene on social media is. Uh, and hygiene in use of the internet is something that that our society has not adjusted to, uh, and needs to develop. Uh, hmm. I think that I, I think we're 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 messing up a lot of people. Uh, you know, one one example, not relevant so much to this conversation, is teenage girls because there's so much when you put something on online. There's so much. It's it's a competitive game. You know who you know how many people liked it, how many people approved it. Uh, who's putting me down? And you do that to uh, teenage girls who are very sensitive about that anyway. And mm -hmm. uh, people have found that like the rate of depression and other neuroses has got shot up because of the uh, smartphones and the social media. So we're more and more and more prone to uh, fast thinking because of social media, the internet, 24-7 uh, cable. Um, let the... Uh, you think, know, I, you know, think of how cable has to operate. So, you know, we're, we're, when when I'm growing up, uh, you know, if Walter Cronkite goes on to give the news, he doesn't have to worry about somebody flipping their channel, uh, you, know, to, you know, using the remote, whatever. Now everybody's worried about how to hold people's attention, and the only and the best way to hold someone's attention is with breaking news and uh, something that that outrages people. Uh, because when people are outraged, they'll pay attention. And so that's what we get is a maximization of outrage in the media. Well, we're also getting a, the silos. You mentioned something in the book about a study that something like uh, some issue came up and 18% of people on social media unfriended someone because they disagreed with yeah. what some, what their, whatever their ex-friend had said. Yeah. People feel a tremendous threat from other points of view now. It's just... and. And they react to that threat. That sometimes they unfriend people, or they um, they find something that 
supports their side very strongly and really puts down the other side and they share it widely. I mean, if you know, I have friends of various political persuasions on Facebook because I've got various non-intersecting groups of friends. Yeah. And the um, the severity of what they of what they post and, and sort of how antagonistic it is toward the other side is just it's painful to watch. I mean, I, I, I basically, st- I've basically unfri- in some sense unfriended everybody because I don't, because <laughs> I just don't, don't want to go on Facebook because I don't want to see it. Well, I, I think you and I are similar in that regard. I, I like to interact with people of all persuasions. I write on my website that, you know, some of my best friends are misguided progressives. Yeah. Uh, but I think that gives us a better, uh, um, it, modestly, I think it, it, it helps us in, in day-to-day life to, of not being uh, driven mad by this political rhetoric. You write something interesting uh, for me, meaning you, a politically segregated America where everybody was dividing up by conservative, libertarian, and progressive would be, be dystopian, even if we're feasible. I like most of the people with whom I disagree. If anything, I have more close friends among people who differ from me politically than among those who share my political outlook. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, a few days ago, we went to see the movie The Post, which is, of course, a, a rallying... Washington Post, yeah. Jay Graham, and... Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's sort of a rallying cry for progressives. I enjoyed the movie. I, you know, I liked the people there. Uh, you know, I it, I was very happy there. And uh, I, as, you, as you know, my hobby is folk dancing, and boy, you don't find a whole lot of conservatives... At a, at a folk dance thing. That's a very progressive kind of thing. And I enjoy those people. And, um, you know, we live in, in an area where I, I'm sure, I think something like 95% people voted for Clinton uh, in the last election. And, you know, there are a lot of my friends there. It's just, uh, you know, they happen to be wrong politically, but I don't, that, you know, it's not, that, that's one thing. It's not, the, it's not, I don't well, I'm of the view the that politics can't solve 95% of the problems people face. And we've spent a disproportionate time trying to get a political solution when there are really other solutions that uh, would matter a lot more, like taking up folk dancing. Yeah. And I highly recommend that everyone read Arnold's blog where he gets to his bio and he's got three or four pages on folk dancing and his, his career. <laughs> and it's uh, it makes for terrific reading. Okay. <laughs> What's your current mode? You, you tried Israeli folk dancing. Yeah, that's what, what I do. That, you're doing yeah, Israeli folk yeah, 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 a ridiculous amount, 10 hours a week. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And where, 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 who, who does that? How many people? Work? Not very many, and it's going <clears> to <throat> die. I mean, I, one of my lines is that hobbies are getting narrower, deeper, and older. That is, uh, a smaller set of people involved. They're more deeply involved. Uh, and then if it's been around a long time, it's, it's, it's older people. They're just... Um, they're just opportunities for people to um, to get deeper into something mm-hmm. uh, because you can connect up with, with other people who are, who are deeper into it. So, uh, I mean, I used to play bridge, and social bridge used to be something. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's mostly tournament bridge because the social bridge was the lowest common denominator activity, and no one does that anymore. People do things that they're very, very interested in, they get very deeply into it, and no one else can break in because uh, they, it becomes more competitive. Yeah, just a weird observation. Yeah. 
we're wandering off into big ideas. Yeah, right. but I like big ideas. And one of the things that strikes me is we're talking about a balkanization of many things. There's not yeah. just three political tribes, but we've got um, uh, Israeli folk dancing tribes and, <laughs> uh, and, and, and contract bridge uh, uh, competitive tribes. And, and it would be nice if, if, those, if the other tribes kind of mixed together and the, and the political tribes kind of faded more. Um, or, you know, I think one of the things that kept politics from being as polarized as it was was that people were mixing in, uh, in different contexts. So, um, for example, when I was young, uh, a blue-collar worker could afford a box seat at the ballpark in St. Louis. And now, you know, the top seats go for six, $800. And, you know, a blue-collar worker maybe can get something in the outfield, uh, maybe. And so, um, you know, we, we, we really have separated a lot more along class lines and political lines, uh, and, and the, the being able to mix and sort of have a bunch of baseball fans of different social classes at the same ballpark was something, something that we're kind of losing. This is one of the themes of Charles Murray's Coming Apart, yeah. a terrific book on the same topic about, or related topic. Uh, one of the things you write is about in the book, and we've got to wrap up in just a minute, although this, for me this could go on hours. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about motivated reasoning. And one of the things you talk about is that you say that if people are open-minded, you'd think they, the more information they had, the more they would come to agreement on an issue. Surprisingly, political scientists and psychologists have found the opposite. Uh, more polarization exists among well-informed voters than among poorly informed voters. Yes. And there's also an experiment where they give people the same information, but they but two groups coming at it from different points of view, and each one of them says that the information makes the, their support for their point of view stronger and the, makes the other point of view weaker. So uh, this is a very important phenomenon that, that uh, promotes polarization. Um, you know, one, I, I sat on a jury once on a tough case, and it was a very different process. People were deliberating. People were listening to each other. People changed their minds. And uh, that's, a, that's, a very, that's very different than when you come in, into a situation with a strong prior point of view. When you come into a situation really genuinely open-minded, uh, the whole dynamic of the discussion is more constructive. And I, I just I wish we could, we could reconstruct that in politics. Well, my wife Sarah encountered that on a jury trial. She was on a murder trial. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Somebody came in with the view of the oppressed uh, oppressor model, mm -hmm. which is that anybody convicted, anybody accused of crime, um, had to be innocent because the police were always bad and <laughs> yeah. always going to be arresting the wrong people. So this person came in saying, "No matter what is presented to me, I'm not going to change my mind." Really? And did they stick with that? They no. Didn't. No. Okay. No. They <laughs> we talked about peer pressure. The, uh, uh, the other 11 finally said, you know, look, if you came in with that, you shouldn't have even agreed to join the jury. So the, the trial had a good outcome, but yeah. that's an example of, it, I think, but, of uh, that motivated but, reasoning. Yeah, but I think, but there is something about the setting, you know, the way the judge instructs you and the whole drama of the courtroom that makes jurors very conscientious and very open-minded. And that we've lost that in politics if we've ever had it. 
and uh, it, it would be. But if if we could somehow recover something like that, uh, well, you it would you be a good, you, you yeah. point at one of the reasons, and I it's provocative, but I think I think there's a lot of truth to it. You point out in the book that as people become less religious, and that becomes the basis for their their faith and their passion and their moral. Uh, um, their moral views, uh, politics has taken on an even bigger uh, role. And so a lot of that moral morality that would be part of the major religions uh, is now uh, vested in uh, politics. Yeah, other people have made that observation too. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a source of concern, sure. What other people? I thought, I thought, I no, thought no, you were first. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it goes way back, actually. What do, what do you think about that? Um, I think it's plausible. I don't know that there's much to be done about it. I wish, uh, yeah, I, I wish there was some way that people could engage on things, on, on moral issues, without immediately turning them into political issues. Well, let's come back to a solution, and let's we will end on a positive note because I think your book points towards one of the solutions, and it's slow thinking. And it's for all of us to begin recognize the moral assumptions that each of the other members of the tribe brings and to respect that. Yes, I think the, the one thing is to try to resist when you hear something that appeals to your tribe. Instead of saying, oh, I want to share that, that's really powerful, take a skeptical point of view and try to take the most charitable view of someone's on the other side. So don't assume that the reason that a conservative disagrees with you is that the conservative is an oppressor. And don't assume that the reason that a progressive disagrees with you is that the progressive is a nihilist who's trying to tear down civilization. And don't think that the reason a libertarian disagrees with you is that the libertarian is either a nihilist or, a, or an oppressor. But try to, try to make a, a charitable interpretation of why someone else would disagree with you. That would be one, one start. I think that's great wisdom. Uh, we've been talking with Arnold Kling, who's written a great book, The Three Languages of Politics. Uh, it can be found on Amazon. Uh, you can reach uh, Arnold at his blog, Arnold Kling, the Arnold Kling blog. Yeah, you'll find it. You'll find it. And he's been, one of, he, he basically almost invented the notion of blogging, and he's got a, got a tremendous... Uh, body of work on it. I highly recommend everybody go on and read and and learn from Arnold. Arnold? Okay. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.